Hey there, folks. Alex Lokes here, and welcome back to Classic Camera Revival. We are a group of film photographers. We accept the fact that we are the essentially a society of creative anachronisms. But sometimes there's just some technology that hangs on that just won't die. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival, coming to you from the Greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. So photography as we know it has been around for a very long time. And things have changed greatly. There's been um, missteps. There's been a handful of Ford Edsels within the film photography community. And then there are some things that just hang on for far too long and people keep trying to revive them or try to keep holding on to old technology that just really should die. And we're bringing this back to our mystery camera challenge because poor Bill has now been subjected to the red window. At least it's not the red light. I was, uh, yeah, I was thinking of somehow I could work in that police reference. I was thinking more Amsterdam. <laughs> but that works too, because it really kind of alludes to the same thing. Okay, I'm of a certain age. The police, I, I, you know, what, yeah. well, whatever. Anyway, the red window. Sounds like a, a semi-dirty movie from Europe circa 1977. But in reality, it was a lovely piece of technology created to solve a simple problem. Advancing film, specifically medium format film, specifically film that had backing paper, uh, so you don't overshoot the frame. Well, I'm not sure if it's the red window technology or the lovely people who make medium format film out there in the, the world. They don't make the numbers contrasty enough. Hey, man, we're going to get trendy. We're going to do shades of gray. The graphic designers are all over it, man, and they think it's cool. I have words for that. Part of me is like would probably sound off that would probably make a Hell's Angel member blush <laughs> and feel like, God, are you okay? Like, man, chill, chill. It's, it's all good. But the reality is the red window is obsolete technology and knowing my dumbass luck, the brain trust behind reflex camera will come up with something medium format. And hey, man, we're going to put a re red window in back to give you that nostalgic feeling. To my words, you. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't hurt it doesn't help that we have companies like Shanghai who are like absolute geniuses in constructing high contrast backing paper. You know, it's so high contrast the backing paper actually goes onto your film. Mm. You get a perfect exposure of those lovely numbers unless you um well, pre-soak for five or ten minutes. Try years. And I would also argue that, like, you know, we're recording this in, in 2021. I would say that the red window has been obsolete since the 1930s because the red window was great for orthochromatic film, but for panchromatic film, panchromatic film re records red yeah. light very, very happily. So, you know, it's 
it's it's doubly obsolete. But you even saw it in cameras in the 1950s. The uh, the camera that the company that my uh, Opa Ostuk worked for when he left the Netherlands for for Canada bought him an Agfa Box 50, and it had a red window in it. Well, I had a toy camera from the 1970s called ubiquitously the Tammy. I can't remember mm. what format it was. It definitely wasn't 120. Maybe it was slightly smaller, almost like a 4x4. Four four, maybe. 127? Probably, most likely 127, because I could easily still buy that film with my pocket money in the late 1970s. It had the red window, but somehow it worked. Well, same yeah. with the Bakelites, too, right? Like, they all had the red or orange window. And, yeah. And they, they were all in the era of panchromatic films as well. Egg for click, egg for clack. And at least there were Holgas. cameras like the Metalist, where you needed the red window just to get to the first frame. Hmm. But then, after you know, and once you got the first frame, frame, you just turned like a little thing to get the click in position. And then from there on, the camera did the rest. Well, even the earliest Holga magazine still had the red window because the Kiev 88 had the red window for the first frame. You advanced it to one, you closed the little window, and then you could crank away. I have a, a Voigtlander Bessa 66. It's a little six by six folder, beautiful lens, crappy viewfinder, but it also has the red window. And yeah, it's. Some films have nice contrasty numbers. They're great. Other ones, I guess, that have that sort of aesthetic, you know, artistic aesthetic of, you know, gray on gray. Mm. And if it's a bright day, you are effed. Yeah, that's what I found out uh, during the Mystery Camera Challenge with the Lena Senior something or other. I just could not see the number. And it's like that classic Facebook meme. Here are the numbers. You can barely see it except one and say, yeah, buy more cameras. <laughs> yeah. Or buy more film because you've gotten three shots on the roll. Well, you yep. get more bang for your buck, right? You know, free multi-exposure. There you go. <laughs> yep. How did I get 18 frames out of this camera? Uh, you, I don't know. you could get a Canada Council grant. Very true. I haven't thought of that. Hmm. Well, speaking of red, you know, one of the things that um, are still around are red lights in dark rooms. Yes. And they still work, but they're, you know, extremely dim and yep. hard to see. So uh, a couple of years ago when I built my dark room, aside from breaking my thumb and ankle during the process, um, I uh, purchased LED strip lights, which are um, completely um, photo paper safe. I uh, did a couple of tests. I exposed um, a couple sheets of paper for 30 minutes uh, on, right in front, like literally inches away from the LED strips and absolute blank, no exposure whatsoever. Um, my dark room is about uh, 13 feet by 20 feet. So essentially like about the size of my kitchen. Yeah. So it's, I have a pretty sizable dark room. Um, uh, and you know what they say, guys with the big dark room can make big prints. Um, well, that's why you got the stripper, li I mean, strip lights. <laughs> um, never said it was a good quality print. I just, I could make big prints. That's it. But no, in all, in all seriousness, you know, when you have a large dark room space, um, <laughs> oh boy. Uh, Size doesn't matter. Thank, thanks, Jess. I think... I think 
I, I don't know. Maybe I should just be quiet yeah. now. And, mm. and, and, and the brass pole is really just a drying yeah. rack for prints. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I shoot with a 900 millimeter lens. Am I compensating for something? I don't know. Hmm. Anyway. Um, uh, we're only on the third episode. Good God, people. where was I? Anyway, <laughs> when you have a large darkroom space to, uh, to provide red safe light in, uh, you know, rather than you know, installing six incandescent light bulb sockets and buying yourself, you know, six red lights uh, that will burn out over time. Get yourself uh, some LED strip lights, run them around the perimeter of your darkroom. Uh, I think for, uh, it was about 24 feet or thereabouts, were, was like about 50 bucks on yeah. Amazon. Um, and it has a dimming feature. Everything's done by remote control and, yeah, I mean, you know, there's really no need for your traditional um, incandescent, incandescent uh, carbon footprinted. Um, not that I mean, everything's bloody carbon footprinted in the world today, so I'm not going to go there. But, you know, it's a little bit more efficient. It lasts a long time, and it does the job better than any incandescent light. And any, I'm talking about all the other variations of really cool, uh, you know, darkroom lights that have mm. come out over the years. And you know what? Go and, uh, you know, try something new. And I'm sure there were people that when the first safe lights came out in incandescent were bemoaning this fact because they were still using the red filters with candles. I got a, a darkroom printing kit from, um, from someone and it actually contained an original Kodak red filter that you would put around a candle. A candle! <laughs> I think one advantage of uh, of the LEDs is, of course, you can adjust. You know, with the proper LEDs, you can get different colors. So, exactly. for you know, regular photo paper, you can get that orangey color. Mm-hmm. But let's say you're dealing with some old, uh, you know, cotolith, or you're doing some high contrast stuff, or you, let's say you're inspection developing orthofilm, mm-hmm. you need that pure red. You don't have to have another filter plate. You just go and you know. Get your app or the, you the control it. dial and change the color red. temperature. Yeah, you know, there's really you know why suffer? Not to mention there are there are X-ray films that are that are different different yeah. sensitivities. You could adjust your light and still be able to develop by inspection. Mm-hmm. It just makes your darkroom more usable within the modern context. Like why suffer needlessly? Yeah, exactly. And speaking of suffering needlessly, light meters. And uh, James... That is not mine. That is not yours. That's yours, Bill. That is mine. Actually, that belonged to my dad. It it does need a good overhaul. Uh, It's a classic uh, Gerson... Luna 6.3. Yeah. And I have my Luna 6F with me. It is a fantastic meter. But the simple fact is is that one day it's going to die. Oh yeah, I have a Profi Six. It takes a nine volt battery. I know at yep. some point it's going to go bye bye. But the nice thing is, is that these days there are some people out there who are building modern meters. They are new. They are well built. And of course, I'm alluding to our good friend Matt Betchberger, who produced the uh, Ravini Labs Hot Shoe Meter, and more recently the uh, Ravini Labs Spot Meter. And again, I have my Gossen Luna Pro F, but I've also invested in um, a Pentax Spot Meter 5. Fantastic meter. Again, it's going to die. 
And I actually find that I get better exposure values out of my Raveni Lab spot meter. And it took a bit to get used to the whole idea of holding up up to your eye and keeping your other eye open so that you can sort of aim it. And but again, I I have a lot more control over your exposure. You have a greater range of apertures, greater range of uh, film speed values. And one thing that's going to be coming out um, hopefully soon is the uh, new light meter from Negative Supply, which also includes color temperature reading. Like everything's in this one package and it's brand new. So I think we really need to start moving away from waxing poetic about these old devices that are, that are, yeah, they're getting old, they're wearing out. The equipment can't be repaired as easily. Batteries aren't readily available. I'm lucky to have a pair of Sarconic L398As, the classic mm. cinematographer meters. Yeah. One was basically new old, stock, new old stock overhauled by a camera repair tech that sadly is long gone. Uh, and the other one basically new out of the box. The negative supply lab uh, meter that can do color. That one intrigues me because, again, Matt Betchberger's little like hot shoe meters and the pocket that's great but i want something you can almost well lose <laughs> when 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 mine comes in and i've i've run it through its paces i'll pass it off to you to uh give run it a try it. yeah because yeah. again i like the idea of color temperature because you know like right now we're in a rather we're, we're recording in my kitchen it has a rather warm color cast with the light. It's a it's a soft they call it the soft light LED, but it comes off very warm. Very tungsten. Very almost tungsten. But again, if you're shooting film indoors, it's like, oh, you gotta compensate for that. But whereas, you know, with the meter that can read color temperature, mm. you can fiddle around with it and then figure out the sweet spot and go from there. Exactly. I'm gonna jump in and and people may may turn up their noses uh, what I'm about to say. All I have to say to you is, hey, whatever, float your boats, whatever. I won't be offended. Um, what I tend to use, like if I have, you know, I have some cameras with meters. Recently, you know, I guess maybe just because I'm lazy, I use an app called Pocket Meter on mm. my iPhone. And uh, it, it works and it's accurate. I don't think I've had an exposure fail because of uh, Pocket Meter. And the thing is, it's five dollars, and it's only five dollars because it's donationware. Like you send the developer a beer, so you know you send him a fiver, and uh, for five bucks, you know it's it's great. And the thing is, that, let's say for someone just getting into photography, you know, I'd say you know get an old mechanical SLR. If it doesn't, if the meter doesn't work or it takes exotic batteries, then you try out a free smartphone app uh, for for metering. And and away you go. I think it's a great solution. I I don't feel like I'm compromising when I use it. No, absolutely. And eventually you'll be able to visualize those exposures very easily because it will it will just become muscle memory. Yeah, and and you just you just look at the sky and say, you know, July July, you know, sunny sixteen, or if it's January in Toronto, it'd be f one point zero at one, you know, at uh, <laughs> at five second exposure. Yeah. It's important that we, 
we can't hang on to old technology and then not reward people that are creating innovations um, mm. in our you know hobby community whatever whatever you want to call it uh, for some people film is a profession or film photography is a profession um, but we have to embrace that you know people are coming up with new innovative ideas um, you know and you look at uh, Reveni Labs as an example you yeah. know here's a one you know essentially a one-man operation with mm-hmm. some uh, some high degree of, uh, of intelligence and inspiration uh, and and some capability and went and put something uh, really cool into the market. Blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah, I mean, and you know, you can go, I, I personally, I don't, I have tested his light meter and I would buy one, but I I have, you know, uh, a Sekonic, uh L558, um, which is an incredibly terrific meter that I, you know, I have had for years. Um, but, you know, when that meter dies, I will convert over to Matt's um, yeah. uh, light meter because I need a spot meter for the work that I want to do. Yep. Um, and, you know, those of you that don't want to go out and spend, you know, six, seven hundred dollars on a Sekonic meter, you want to spend maybe half that. You know, and I'm not exactly. You know, we're not getting any commission from Matt. I'm just. It's just a prime example that new technology and and there's so many like cool Kickstarters, you know, uh, oh, that are out there and um, support those guys because they are you know doing away with flatbed scanning as an example is something that might go to the wayside because of and you know DSLR scanning, that's which is what Negative Supply yeah. built themselves yeah. on is their film holders, and you got the Pixelator. Yeah, which is like you can buy insets. Yeah, to do you know, it, you can you can choose how you deliver your criticism to people that are innovating. You know, yeah. you can do it in a demeaning way, or you could do it in a constructive way. And I think any inventor uh, out there wants constructive criticism because they want to make their product better. And I think it's important to let go of anything petty in terms of criticisms that we have about you know we're not talking about nikon nikon's probably a poor example we're not talking about canon's budget here for r&d we're talking about people that are working out of their basements working out of their garages you know shoestring budgets trying to do something good for everyone relying on the film photography community like that's essentially what kickstarter and indiegogo is for is to help them raise capital it is yeah. It is an investment. We might not get the shiny dividend at the end. Yeah. And you know, but yeah. We're thinking the same thing, Alex. I won't mention their name in case there's a lawyer listening. Yeah, uh-huh. well, I mean, hey, look, and not every project out there on Kickstarter is successful, but you yeah. know, it's also incumbent on any kickstarting kickstarters out there like people that are doing it. Hey, Shit goes wrong all the time. I'll, just I'll, tell us. Be honest about I'll it. I'll just yep. say in the universe of Kickstarters, you're not going to have success in every galaxy. No. Yeah. And, you know, that goes for sticking with old mechanical cameras as well. Don't be afraid to buy something new. Buy a modern camera. Now, I'm going to switch things up a little bit. I'm going to talk about a technology that, like, in the good riddance department... And the idea came to me, uh, recently a friend of mine said, can you help me sell this darkroom kit? And they had everything. But one thing they had that I hadn't seen in a long time was a ferrotyping print dryer. 
And for those of you, hopefully most of you who have not seen one of these, like I'm, I'm the oldest guy in the show, Ugh, get off my lawn. A ferrotyping print jar, this was back in the day when this was before uh, RC paper was a thing. And so all paper was fiber-based paper. And if you wanted high gloss, you'd have to get the special, you know, high gloss paper. And what a, what a ferrotyper was, was a curved, shiny, shiny metal surface you would put the print down on it, on emulsion side down, go over the print with a squeegee to squeeze out all the water, and then there was a cloth to go over top, turn on a heater, and it would heat up, and the print would dry to a high gloss within a few minutes. And back then, like for, you know, for reproduction, you want, there were technical reasons why the prints needed to be high gloss for maximum resolution in the, in the printed media. The problem with these devices, though, was that uh, like if like one thing about fiber-based prints, you have to wash those prints like a good twenty minutes, forty minutes is better to get all the uh, all the old chemistry out, the old the fixer. Otherwise, after a while, you know, a couple of years, the prints start to turn brown. Ask me how I know. But the problem with the ferrotyper is that if you didn't wash your your prints properly. Uh, and so you're trying to dry them with, uh, and there's a sort of residual chemistry in the print. It would migrate into the cloth cover of the ferrotyper, and you could it'd be like passing. You'd pass it from print to print. So like, so we've never said don't buy used gear, but this is something I'm going to stress. Like, if you ever want to try a ferrotyper, if it's new, great. Otherwise, unless you know where it's been, and if you can guarantee that the person has been fastidious, don't buy it. Buyer beware. No, just I'd say as a general rule, don't use it. Oh, another thing about ferrotyper, unless unless you really want to have some fun, you're about to throw one out, don't use it for RC paper. Mm. Because there, it uses this thing called heat. Oh, melted emulsion. So it might be like I still have... I still have the ferrotyper. I don't think. Have I and how it did yet? you know about the RC paper? No, no. I'm going to give myself some credit. I never dried art. Like I remember when Ilfa Speed came out in the mid '70s, late '70s, when I was in high school, and I, wow, this is so cool. It dries quickly and all that. I never put it in the ferrotyper in the high school darkroom. There you go. So yeah. So again, if you see a ferrotyper, interesting technology. Please don't use it. Yeah. Just hang it to dry and be safe about it. Exactly. And yeah. wash your fucking prints. I, well, in my case, when I do print fiber, I have a pair of screens. I sandwich between them. And again, wash carefully the recommended period of time. And yeah, at the other end, yeah, I put it between two photo books for a week or two and, and flat yeah. as a pancake. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I actually have two ferrotypers in my darkroom, um, but I removed when I when I bought them. Actually, Alex donated one, I believe. I think it came from a coworker of my wife's. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't was no. I think was that a ferrotyper you or I was haven't. it? I think it was a like a uh, like one like it was like a press. Ah, uh, where did that press come yeah. from? Anyway, I have a yeah. So then I think I have, that came from McFarlane. Oh, oh, it could be. Well, anyway, I lied. I have one ferrotyper, but I um I uh, with my one ferrotyper, I actually dismantled and took the uh, the cloth, the canvas off, and I soaked it um, and washed it several times in um, my hardening God. fixer. No, 
Uh, no, um, my gosh, the other stuff. The Hypoclear? Hypoclear, yes. There you go. Yeah, That would do it. And I am meticulous about, you know, sits in the print washer for 30 minutes before it starts to dry. And I only really use it for lift prints. That's the only, only reason for me to use fiber paper. Makes sense. The other thing that we could talk about is it's interesting, you know, film formats. What has survived? What mm. hasn't? Like, like the 120 film format has been around for close to 120 years now. Like Absolutely. something like that. Yeah, I think you mean so. 120 millimeter? Only if you're talking about artillery. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm going to read... Mr. Lee, uh, be very careful. You might trigger some people. Yes, I'm going I'm to reach over and, if you, and maybe I'll just fly in some slapping sounds as we... Uh, <laughs> but uh, some, some formats like, that, uh, you know, like 127 is... That's, that's edgy. It's, it's still around. It's expensive. But, it's expensive. Yeah. But, I wouldn't go out and shoot it on a daily basis. But who here has used 828? Nope. And the inter- and it's called 828 because the original roll had eight exposures and the uh, and it was like 28 millimeters on a side. So, yeah. so a bit bigger than 35 millimeter. And but I guess it just never caught on. And it's just one of those film sizes that I don't you'd be hard pressed to find even expired 828 these days. Hey. And the trouble is, is that there were cameras out there. One of the notable one being the uh, Kodak Pony. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and what really throws people off is that the Pony came in both 35 millimeter, and I have a Pony 135 Model C that I got from my wife's grandparents, and they took it on their honeymoon to New York City. So one thing I want to do is bring that camera back to New York City, but I got the 35 millimeter one. There was also the 828 version. And and they look very similar. So they, they are identical. If if you're buying one, make sure you buy the right one because if you get the 828, like you might get bucked off that pony. <laughs> well, you got a lovely shelf queen right there. And again, Kodak is the king oh, yeah. of obsolete film formats because hey, we're Kodak. We want you to to buy our film and our film alone. But not the other guys, not Ansco, not Ilford. No, we want you to buy our film with the letter K on it. The good thing, at least in a handful of formats, like Take 620, for example, it's essentially 120 film. It's just on a different spool. And we have people like Mike Rosso and the uh, Film Photography Project who are actually paying people to mold inject good 620 spools and doing the hard work of respooling the film. And it's not and it's not that hard, you know, you know, just basically you know, if you have hands that are good in the dark, you can learn how to do it. Or if you have an appropriate <laughs> camera. I totally skipped over that one <laughs> on purpose. If you have hands that are good in the dark, you can do a lot of things. <laughs> My girlfriend might have something to say about that. Oh, well, well, like, well, you know, like film film photographers are good in the dark. Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're really good at feeling around in a black bag. <laughs> Again, my girlfriend has something to say about that. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, boy. Uh, and you know what? 116 film is another one that's kind of like, go away. And then there are film formats that just refuse to die. Like the little, what, that little cart, oh, what's the size? 110? 110, 110 won't go Why? Away. 
Like, I just want to grab these hipsters and just scream at APS them. APS won't go away. Shout out, Mike. Mike Gutterman, hey, yeah. Gutterman. Or better yet, Disc. Oh, God. Oh, I think Disc. Disc is pretty dead. Yeah, I had, yeah dead. kill it with fire. Yeah. I have, yeah, disco sucks. I had, I had someone hand me five Kodak Discs and say, can you scan these? I just started. I, I just tried. smile and going, and I got results. They were not good, like, but I, I got results. I, and I, I, another thing that I think needs to just go away is um, Instamatic. Yep. I mean, good on Facmatic for producing adapters to put 35 millimeter in there, but it will never be the same again. Because a lot of those cameras are cheap and they have selenium meters in them that are just dead to the world at this point. I mean, I have an Instamatic. The only reason I keep it is it belonged to my Omelaux. And it's one of the few connections I have to her. But I would never shoot that camera. Like, no matter how easy it would be, I've shot a grand total of one cartridge through that one and one cartridge through a 126 SLR and never again. It's not worth the hassle. There's a reason like not everything's going to survive. There are some ideas that deserve to die. And then there are also, sorry, on just a more positive side of all of this, um, there are also people who are coming up with really great ideas of taking what can be obsolete equipment and turning it into something kind of new. Mm. Uh, so, you know, like the Mamiya Press and Universal series, they were fantastic Polaroid cameras and pretty much now just kind of paperweights. Yep. Uh, no one really seems to enjoy shooting them that much with roll film. Um, and so now there's companies coming out uh, like uh, the press pan that I bought. Um, mm-hmm. Freeman, uh, he's he's just like a one-man show, but he machines out the Nikon FMs and turns it into this like panoramic 35 millimeter crazy camera uh, using the press lenses. So that's like a way of taking something old and making it into something new. Dora Goodman does the same thing by repurposing the old lenses, even RB backs. And now she uh, she is creating her own six by six film backs. Um, But you can still attach all this old equipment to them. Um, I think uh, even Ethan Moses with the camera dactyls, I believe he uses it. Those cameras use the old lenses as well. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that maybe that's where kind of the future of photography is going to start to go is people taking these older parts that no longer work or are just not as functional as the system that they were and making them into something new. And another example is the guy in the States who can take the old Polaroid 110s and 95s and convert them into 4x5s. Like these people, yeah. That, that, yeah. They, they, they are heroes because they are keeping stuff literally out of the landfill. Out of, out of the landfill. Yeah. yeah, exactly. No. There's even a guy, um, the one that I bought the second Polaroid back for my RB67, he also takes, um, I think it's the Polaroid 110s and transform them, transforms them into using Instax wide. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now all of a sudden we can also have a new generation of instant film cameras that are actually really, really good. And the the optics in those early Polaroid cameras were fantastic. fantastic. High and quality. I really wish, because when I had, I had one of those original roll film Polaroids, 
and I was about to send it to the guy who in Australia, Razzle, who converted them to four by five. And it was like, I was, I was in the process and he's like, I'm really sorry, but I just can't do it anymore. And I'm like, ah, oh. and I got rid of it. Yeah. I think it's a shelf queen in some office at Sheridan at this point. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. My name's Alex Lokes. As they used to say in elementary school, reduce, reuse, recycle. And that really does apply to film photography these days. Um, reduce the amount of cameras you uh, put away into uh, landfills. Reuse the cameras you can. And if you're not using a camera, pass it on. Recycle it. Because there is going to be someone out there who will either come up with a new innovation for it or just love it again. This is Bill Smith. Just on what Alex said, reduce, reuse, recycle. Eh, you guys are being too serious. This is James Lee. There's no cure for herpes, but there is a cure for old technology. <laughs> this is Jess Hobbs, and I don't know why I always go after James. <laughs> <laughs> but as I told John earlier today, you're only as old as you feel, so use equipment and make it feel young again. This is John Meadows. I like to think that I am living proof that six-decade-old equipment can function, at least occasionally. Occasionally.